Welcome to Roots and Hoots. I'm here with uh, our special guest, Harley Bastian. I'm your host, Gordon Spence from the Legacy Oak Foundation. Hello, Harley. How are you today? I am doing fine, my friend, Gordon. It's, it's nice to talk with you again. How are you doing? We're doing good. We're doing good. You know, the weather here is beautiful today. Uh, sun is shining. Uh, it's been kind of... Uh, Kind of tricky trying to do work, you know, from home, but uh, somehow we're we're managing. So, uh, um, yeah. All, all, other than that, uh, we're all doing pretty good. Uh, Harley, uh, maybe uh, just to start off this uh, podcast, uh, you can uh, introduce yourself in terms of like who you are, where you're from, and uh, and uh, what you do as an occupation. Oh, very good, Gord. Hey, uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, uh, show my appreciation and uh, thanks for uh, you folks reaching out to uh, to ask me to uh, join in on, on this podcast here. I very much appreciate it. Uh, my name is Harley Bastine. My Blackfoot name is uh, goes as Itumamaka. Uh, I'd like to greet you all in my native tongue. I start off with Damix Tistico. Nistuenok Itumamaka. Numchtu tu pikania. What I just said to, to you folks is that I uh, wish you all a very nice day. Uh, my name translated into English uh, basically means the leader. And I. Uh, uh, I am from the Bikani people, uh, which today we call ourselves nation. Um, I guess a bit about my, of who I am and where I come from. Uh, where, where, uh, we were formerly known as the Pagans, but like all First Nations, we claim back our traditional names and we're the Bikani. Yeah. Uh, we're the, we're part of the Blackfoot Confederacy. Right. We make up one of the uh, four uh, tribes or nations. Uh, we've yeah. got the, we've got the blood to the south of us, Siksika, the Blackfoot to the east of us, and we're the Apatoxi uh, Bikani, the North North Bikani, and. Uh, they're our largest part of our nation, the Blackfoot Nation. They're located just inside uh, Montana. They, they're presently known as the Blackfeet. Okay. That's kind of uh, who we are as the people, as a nation. Yeah. How, um, far your, how far is your territory? Is it in Alberta or is it... Uh... Are, are your traditional territory beyond those borders? Traditional territory uh, goes beyond the 49th parallel. Mm -hmm. When that was surveyed up back in the 18, mid-18, circa 1850, 60 era, era somewhere in there, uh, uh, 
The Blackfoot people referred to it and translated into English as the medicine line. That's what we call the border. Yeah. And uh, I'll get back to the medicine line, why we call it that. Uh, our, our traditional territory is marked by rivers. Yes. Native people, we mark our territories by rivers. Right, right. Our, our northern border is the South Saskatchewan River, as far as up into Ed, present-day mm -hmm. Edmonton. Then it goes all the way down to the Missouri River. Yeah. Um, wow. That's our north-south border. Would that our, be Montana? Yeah, well, into Montana, right in around where present-day Great Falls is. Yeah. Right up in that area. <clears throat> Pardon me. And for east-west, we go to the, we encompass the uh, Cypress Hills and what we call the Sand Hills. Uh -huh. To the east. And to the west, we go as far as a place we, call, we, we refer to as Amikui. Amikui means where the water flows the other direction. So basically, it's right there at the Continental Divide. That's the scope and size of traditional Blackfoot territory. Mm -hmm. And we all had our own areas, again, <clears throat> uh, marked by rivers. We're becoming our traditional, our areas from the Little Bow River to the north, and up to the, um, what they call today, the uh, Waterton River. That's how we call it in Blackfoot. That's Bikani's territory. Basically, we were, my people, our tribe, we were stationed here in this area to safeguard the Crow's Nest Pass from invasion or intrusion because uh, like today, we have all these highways and railroads and whatnot, oh, and, 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 and we hear a lot of stories about, or just the one side history of, of what the British North American and British Canadians have this modern day history. But all those roads and railroads and passes they claim to have discovered were well established for many a thousands of years by our people. They basically just followed our trails. It's not like they cut their way through a, a, a vast jungle with no, you know. That's right, yeah. You know, so basically, you know, there, so that all kind of ties into why we're here because we've been invaded from the West, you know, from the Crow, the Kutnawa and all the different tribes with come through the other passes through the mountains and sneak down through the crow's nest and yeah. attack us, eh? So beyond that invasion uh, threat and reason why it was important to guard the crow's nest pass, it's also a very phenomenal area, a natural phenomena, in that uh, it's uh, right where I live, where we get a lot of west wind, especially during the winters. And uh, we get these uh, Chinooks frequently throughout the winter season. Uh, the Chinooks are uh, generated on the west coast off the Pacific Ocean, which is consists of a warm air and follows the passes that 
all the way through the mountains and blows out right here at the mouth of the Crows Nest, where the prairies and the mountains connect. That's where the that's what we call refer to as the mouth of the Crows Nest Pass. So you you can well imagine where you've got standing snow all winter that makes life exceptionally hard, especially for grazing animals, ungulates and that. Here the snow is all blown away and there's open grazing. So vast yeah. herds of ungulates would hang here. Bison, elk, deer, <clears throat> moose. And with the predators that followed these herds, so it was a rich area in those types of natural resources during the winter. It always guaranteed uh, the possibility of having fresh meat. Yeah. Did it cause conflicts, like uh, different tribes going there? Well, definitely there's been, uh, uh, there has been territorial wars and trespasses, especially yeah. there between the Pigani and the Kutanawa. Today, well, they're called the Kootenai, uh, Kinbasket, and I forget the other two other tribes up there. But we didn't always just have, have uh, battles. We also shared the wealth here. And yeah. that we would trade or we would tax these people who needed these resources. They would come down and barter. And we've been bartering for thousands upon thousands of years as native people from coast to coast to coast. So they would come down and uh, we would meet at a certain point, uh, normally at the, uh, at the headwaters of the, of the Crow's Nest Mountain or the Crow's Nest River, which is the Crow's Nest Mountain, which is a vast uh, mountain lake of um, artesian water. We would parlay in that area, and uh, we would trade for things that they had, and we would, we would tax them. Say, for example, they want to kill 20 buffalo, well, we maybe get two out of it, right. two finished products, eh? so that would save us to work. Yeah. So that's kind of the strategic uh, importance of the Crow's Nest Pass. And the, my people, the north, northern Bikani, we were set up here to guard the, and safeguard the Crow's Nest Pass. So you had a tax system already. I prefer to use, you know, the, uh, call it the bartering, but I guess in, in modern terms, you know, yes, yeah. you know, everybody... Of you know, contributing, yeah. especially if you were a, a visitor or a foreigner or a, yeah, a distant tribe, true. you know. And, uh, yeah. you know, well, well, we didn't just war as Native people. I mean, we'd have our battles, if, you know, just like anything else. But we also relied on each other. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, we, you know, we had, a, I mean, there's artifacts found here in southern Alberta that originated in, you know, Mexico. Right. Yeah. You know, we got uh, con shells that you could only find on the West Coast that were discovered down here through archaeological digs that go back thousands of years. Yeah. Like if oh. I, uh, from uh, our, our community in northern Manitoba, they did some archaeological digs there a few years back, and uh, they found some artifacts there that dated back thousands of years. And it, the, the artifacts they found, some of them were not not from the area, and that they're actually from 
parts of the southern United States. So you're right, you know, absolutely. We had, you know, we've been trading and traveling uh, to other parts of Canada uh, for, for thousands of years. So. Oh, that's right. Uh, we, we, we've traveled, uh, right, you know, we've have uh, established trade for thousands of years, you know, um, right here on Turtle Island, which is today called the North American continent. Right. Native people, well, we call it Turtle Island. And uh, myself, I like to refer to, you know, to my traditional, our traditional yeah. name of this land that we call our home. Yeah, no, we've established trade. And when the Europeans come, well, they just, you know, they just followed our trails and they followed us inland and so on and so forth and you know first came the people on foot and then they got a little longer boats they started going up the rivers and then they got horses and then they got steam engines and then they got cars and while they're claiming you know we, we hear names like rogers for rogers pass lewis and clark and yeah. you know all these early um, even they even got the uh, Christopher Columbus and the, you know, <laughs> included. Yeah. Yeah. But in reality, they didn't discover anything. Yeah. They just followed what a, a system of uh, of people living for thousands of years. They just, you know, just kind of made their way in and uh, modified things, and voila, here we are in modern day times. Yeah, we were talking about. Uh your language with some of my colleagues. And uh, and I thought that uh, I'd met somebody in Alberta who who said that uh, your language, the Blackfoot language, comes from the Algonquin nation, mother tongue. Is that true, or what do you know about that? I think that that is a, that theory, and it, and it is what it is, it's a theory. Yeah. It hasn't been proved traditionally, yeah. uh, orally, or scientifically, for that matter. Right. I, like I worked in, uh, you know, I, I didn't get to introduce myself and my background, but I've got a strong archaeological background in that I've worked on numerous archaeological projects throughout my life, and I, as an employer, employed a lot of uh, archaeological firms to do work for you know uh, for myself in my my you know business in the past and so i've got a solid understanding of the science of archaeology and uh you know anthropology because i've been in it for about 35 years and still yeah. active in that area in that field what do you do now like what's your main occupation now well right now i'm uh have enjoyed life. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm, I'm a semi Well, I'm retired from the industry in 2017 after 35 years of working in the environmental industry, strictly the private sector. I never really worked for any levels of government from uh, local to federal. I have worked, I've been involved with the uh, government projects but as a contractor and subcontractor i've uh, been involved with other governments in the state of montana state of new york and 
spend a fair bit of time in China working with various uh, governmental uh, ministry, uh, you know, uh, departments over there. So I've got a, you know, a, a, um, a, a background in, in that area. But today I'm uh, semi-retired. I retired, but I uh, couldn't really get away. But uh, I keep getting called back, <laughs> you know, and uh, because of my commitment to Mother Earth, I can say no. If someone asks me and I, I don't feel like, and I, you know, but I, I'm committed. Uh, uh, to me, it's a personal commitment that I made when I was a child many years ago. Yeah. I made well, you have an you have an interesting uh, uh, place there uh, from when we visited uh, a year and a half or so ago. You want to just talk a little bit about that? Uh, I think it's called Buffalo Rocks. That's right. It's called Buffalo Rock Teepee Camp. Um, Basically, what Buffalo Rock Teepee Camp is, is an educational outdoor learning venue. It's, a, uh, it's geared towards uh, the program that I established there. It uses two um, different areas to approach nature and the importance of nature, the land, the climate, the spiritual integrity of the land how important that is and how little we are aware of it in present day times. We weren't always like that. When I say we, not only natives of Turtle Island, but even in Europe, they used to call them pagans down there, Dave, because they, they had a spiritual and uh, a respect for things like trees and grass and animals. Eh? And that's where the spiritual integrity lies is is in all that energy that emanates from the planet all the life source you know the air the water plants they all got spirits i right. think that only man has the spirit is is you know <laughs> to me i haven't got words for it other than lost maybe yeah. Delusional, <laughs> you know. So at Buffalo Rock, because of the strong science background I possess and the and the fundamental and strong traditional knowledge that I have, I combine what I call indigenous science and Western science, and I bring them together. <laughs> and I take that knowledge and wisdom, and I I bring it out onto the land, and I. I opened a whole new perspective to people who were either just strictly uh, from a scientific modern day community and also exposed to traditional people to the science. So I, I bring both, I guess we could say, uh, disciplines together and I teach, not in a classroom, but right on the land. So that's what basically what the essence of Buffalo Rock Teepee Camp is. It is it's, a, it's a very special place in that it's, it's long been a uh, location of environmental conservation. I inherited the land off my father, and he was an environmental conservationist traditionally. Yeah, yeah. He, he prayed to the water. If you're going to do this, oh, no, 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 you don't do that. You know, you, you, 
You want to eat cherries, you don't go break a branch off and walk away with the branch, eh? Yeah. You you pick the berries, and and, and you don't pick them all. I was, as, as kids, you know, and, uh, and not only my dad thought that, but I learned a lot from my grandparents and my grandmother, my mom's side. For example, today, it's all about maximization. Make it worth my while, getting bang for my buck sort of attitudes that rules the planet as far as mankind is concerned. Right. Uh, traditionally, is is you take what you need and you leave it. Yeah. Two different concepts. And I think I'm going to use that concept in a story just to kind of broaden that. For example, we at Buffalo Rock TP Camp, which you, you and your uh, colleagues came and spent some time there, we have uh, choke cherry and uh, Saskatoon trees grow there. As a kid, we could not break any branches, and we could only pull the branch down so far, the tree down so far. We always left the top berries there. We could have easily bent the tree right down and harvested all the berries. We left them because this is what I was taught. We leave the berries up there for the trees so their seeds can fall on the ground. They can continue growing. And we leave the berries up there for the birds. They need to eat too. So we almost done that. About 30 kilometers to the north of me is a, is a Hutterite colony, um, Granham colony. And they've been friends of my families, my dad and even my granddad. And they've known each other all those years. When I came in possession of the property, I got a call from the Granham colony and they came down and I wasn't around, I supervised them at the moment. So I said, yeah, go ahead. And so they came in and I come down there and, and there they were picking. And they had little regard for tree damage, hey. They just went there and pulled them right down and picked everything up in there. And I said, well, hey, wait a minute. You can't pick them all. And they just looked at me with this, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> it's just, well, and before I had a chance to talk, there's, you know, half a dozen Hutterite ladies and a bunch of other young girls just all kind of coming down on me and say, yeah, you know, they're just going to fall on the ground. And that, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I used the story to, as an example of, Two different world views on one tree. One is to just to maximize it, take what you can and just walk away. And the other is to conserve and take what you need and leave the rest. These are the kind of things that I teach at Buffalo Rock. And I help open eyes, I hope, to young people. I embrace young people to, to come and spend time with me and Buffalo Rock and my support staff and the elders. And we bring a whole different experience to outdoor ed, you know, any of the post-secondary uh, science, you know, uh, disciplines. I get a lot of post-secondary uh, universities, college participation, uh, school districts, elementary, junior high. So this is uh, 
that's that's basically the classroom outdoor Blackfoot traditional learning center that I've uh, been entering into my ninth well would have been my ninth season this year yeah. but uh, but even as we speak Buffalo Rock is an ongoing facility like any other facilities there's maintenance mm-hmm. to be done and preparations yeah. for you know next year or the whenever things come back to what we're calling the new norm mm-hmm. you know so uh, that's kind of in a in a nutshell that's what we we teach there at buffalo rock uh, mm-hmm. we also not only teach you know the plant relationship but we have numerous tp circles on the property um stone effigies uh buffalo wallows uh, we had uh, some archaeological uh, test pits dug there uh test holes uh, by a team of uh, international archaeologists and um very fascinating very rich in the blackfoot culture yeah. you know you could see it from right on top of the land uh yeah. we also teach spiritual component of how trees communicate of how the birds in the trees communicate and, and how we're all just interlocked together mm-hmm. and um and i like teaching that to children and younger people and people are in uh, post-secondary that are going on to be teachers and i feel if they leave buffalo rock with a little bit of that energy with a little bit of that understanding and that hopefully a little bit of that spirit that it can help out our situation as a as a species yeah you know because as a, as a species mankind were very harsh on on the other species right just like you know max uh, today i i see the biggest enemies of uh of life as we know it on the planet the spirit of the planet is luxury and profitability you know it's all about maximizing my profit even though we're we're just ripping off future generations of our own kind you know we can party today but <laughs> they're going to wake up with the mess and have to contend with it yeah. so these are the kind of things that i teach at buffalo rock okay. and i've uh, my learning has started at home i was born and raised on the reserve i left the reserve at a as a teenager and pretty much been all around the world uh seen many sights and sounds that i never experiences that i never my wildest dream i would have ever but all the while i i i used nature as my guide and followed her and uh respected the teaching that i was brought up with and uh and today i i basically come full circle yeah i left the old man river valley and i'm back at the old man river valley that's the river, right? That goes through your uh, your territory and your your land is the called the old man. Well, it's it's uh, today, yeah. It's it's called as the as as the old man river, but that's not the traditional name for it. The traditional name is uh, Napi. Napi is a figure in Blackfoot culture that uh, teaches us a lot of things. It's a teacher in 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 many ways. He's also a 
a trickster, and he's got nasty ways about him too. Right. You know, and uh, Napi uh, teaches has taught the Blackfoot people many lessons. Yeah. And these lessons are through stories and uh, which all have a me a meaning. There's a lesson in every one of those stories for mankind. Every one of those Napi stories. So being Napi and his major major uh, position in Blackfoot ways, we this river is named after him. Napi meaning old man. Blackfoot way of saying is Napi Ikhtan means the old man's apostrophe S that it belongs to him. River. Napi okay. river. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, but uh, Europeans come and they just said, well, it's the old man river. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but it flows right through the Pagan Nation and uh, it, it too flows through uh, Buffalo Rock. And uh, it's a very sacred river. Yeah. As all rivers are, but it's it's especially sacred to the Begunny people and definitely indeed myself. Yeah. Does it flow to the area called Riding on Stone? No, that's the Milk River there. That's the Milk River. Okay. Yeah, it's uh originates in uh, I believe in Montana and or uh, close in a close to the medicine line. Yeah. And uh it ex it flows back, it leaves the Canada and flows back into the USA. That's the Milk River down there. Okay. The uh not uh not the Ikhtan, old man's river is confluence with the um well up here in the headwaters at the here at the uh, crow's nest mouth of the crow's nest there's three doorman river is combined of three rivers what they call the castle river or or we call the paint river where we get the paint and then we've got the crow's nest that comes out of the crow's nest pass and the crow's nest lake. And then we've got the old man that comes out of Napi's playground up Thunder Mountain, way up on the backbone, that part of the country. They join at one point to the west of us here, and then they form the old uh, Napi Ikta, Old Man's River. And they, it continues down to uh, close to the proximity west of uh, Lethbridge, where the um, Belly River and St. Mary's River and the Waterton River, they all conflue on their own area. And those three rivers join and they conflue with the Old Man, making the Old Man River, Old Man's River, what it is. From that point east, it flows down and it conflues with the uh, South Saskatchewan, down up near around uh, Medicine Hat way up in that part of the country, then on its way east to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of how the river systems are in in my area. But like I go back to saying where we were, rivers marked our traditional boundaries, hey? Right. Yeah, so if you stayed on your side of the river, you're all right. Yeah. Okay. Just like the saying goes, stay on your side of the tracks, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I know that.
I grew up on the other side of the track. <laughs> I think it's native people. We, back in our day, we pretty much all did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I wanted to ask you, uh, we were talking about uh, Buffalo Rocks and where you're from. Uh, and uh, when we last talked, uh, you were showing us around your property and talking about the plants and some of what you're talking about today. You mentioned that I thought found this very fascinating uh, about your uh, how you buried your people. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, uh, and uh, with the trees and, and how that interconnects? Oh, yeah, I'd love to share that. Well, you know, that's just that's just one example of how all indigenous people are connected to the land yourself and your people you have your own unique connection to the land and uh in terms of us up here begunny blackfoot Siksika, we laid our deceased to rest in two different fashions the more popular fashion was a uh, platform burial in trees treetops so down here in the Old Man River, we Old Man River Valley, we have one particular tree that's that's uh, called today as the narrow leaf cottonwood, which is a neat tree in that it's restricted to Canada only, to the Old Man's River Valley, west south west of Lethbridge. It's the only place in Canada we could find this tree, and it's a. Uh, it's the shortest of the tree canopy trees. It maxes out at 30, 35, 40 feet in height. And it's a multiple crown in that it's got a lot of lower branches that develop. Those branches served as uh, areas for our aerial or laid to rest platforms were built on. And we would bundle up our deceased in a buffalo robe or whatever we had at the time, and we would lay them to rest up there. And if had a hide, you would wrap the deceased in there and lace it shut with rawhide and yeah. sort of like a cocoon and just place to rest along with the possessions, prized possessions. Over time, platform would break away and the body would fall on the ground, the remains. And over time, those remains would decompose and turn into earth and all the nutrients from the bones and the body's remains be becomes food for the trees and all the plants. So in that context, our bodies are a part of those trees. We are basically one and the other. So that's how, you know, in that case, that's how we are connected to those particular, to the trees in, in the Old Man's River Valley and other river valleys in Blackfoot Territory. The, the, the other way we would lay the rest would be on high outcrops, up on high hills, high peaks, higher elevations, and those were normally reserved for people of high stature too. Um, chiefs, medicine people, yeah, they would be have a good vantage point, and they would be laid 
covered up with rocks, big flat rocks. Yeah. So those are the two ways, but in terms of how we are interconnected, that's how the Blackfoot people are interconnected right. with the deciduous trees here in yeah. our traditional territory. We, we, we are one and the same. So what's your like uh, relationship with a tree that you consider part of your ancestors? I you consider it your grandfather or great grandfather. I consider the trees my family, my cousins, the older trees. I refer to them as the grandfather trees. I know of several in the valley down here, and I give them a big hug every time I go by them. I talk to them and pray with them, give them a little bit of offering, tobacco, and give them the utmost respect that I can. Yeah. Because without trees, there'd be no life as we know it on this planet. You know, the trees are the lungs and the blood veins and the backbone of life as we know it. They're very important. But over time, again, you know, nowadays people look at the trees and all this, these dollar signs, say, yeah. you know, chop them down. And it's true, we need lumber, but there's a, uh, there's a saying that I like to associate myself with in my ways of conducting my, my time on the planet is that harmony and balance. The more we try to attain harmony and balance in our lives, in our, on our planet, even, yes, and even within ourselves, the better things are going to be for the planet. Yeah, and that's, uh, so, you know, harmony and balance is, uh, is what I'd like to see, you know, employed in uh, harvesting natural resources, logging, mining, yeah. oil sands, dams. You know, sure, we need those. But do we have to maximize everything? Right. right. You know, when we, when we do maximize them, what do we do with all that profit? Yeah. Now, if I will, I'd just like to share with you a little experience I had, and it kind of ties into. So anyways, I, a few years ago, I took a drive, my wife and I, down the Mexico way. We went on an epic road journey, and uh, driving through California and all the desert regions, um, started off in Northern California, I started noticing all these rivers and creeks were dry. No water in it. He kept on going, you know, Nevada way and all that through that country. And along the highway, I see these magnificent green oasis all along the highway. Golf courses, perfectly groomed. Nobody playing golf most of the times I drove by them. See the water going, people out there working on them. Started seeing all these swimming pools full of water with nobody swimming in them. And then they're looking around and they're saying, and then I'm looking at the rivers and saying, well, maybe that's where all the water's going. They're basically <laughs> robbing nature yeah. for waste, you know, just total waste. Right, yeah. I mean, that's how lost people have become in the whole vacuum of uh, profitability and luxury. 
Capitalism. Yeah. And that's a prime example of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, you know, we're now down there in California, they're getting a hammer. Nature doesn't take it forever. It's not like mankind controls anything yeah. when it comes to nature. Yeah. Look at what nature's doing to California. Burning think, it down, burning it down, and they got no water to shut it off with. Do you think this is, uh, with all this stuff that's going on, like the fires in California and uh, now this pandemic that's going on all over the world, how do you look at this? Do you look at this as uh, uh, nature's way, or Mother Earth's way of uh, telling us something? I look at it without a shadow of a doubt. Is, that's the exact fact. Mother Nature is the boss. Mother Nature is far more intelligent than we ever will be, far more powerful. And uh, she's, you know, and let's go back to science. Scientists tell us that, you know, have come up with hard data and facts and rocks in their hands that, you know, there were dinosaurs here and that. And beyond that and beyond that and different life forms and evolution and science tell us that we all were apes at one time. We all originated in Africa. But Mother Nature <laughs> controls all that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she knows when we're hurting her too hard. Right. You know, she'll cause a big drought, fires, hurricanes, tornadoes, you name it. And what happens if they just keep hitting us in succession? You know, every year you get a tornado in the same place. You know, then what do you do? I mean, yeah. And now we got this virus that originated in the planet, and the planet is, is it, it originated on this planet. And this planet has got energies that we have not even come to realize. I'm saying, yeah, for sure. She's, uh, she's, she's setting things straight. Yeah, I believe that. And, uh, you know, there's other people that won't believe it. I mean, some believe in blind faith, you know. Yeah. If I eat my vitamins, say my prayers in the morning, everything's going to be all right, eh? There's a lot of people like that, eh? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, each to their own, I guess. But the bad thing is that we all share the same destiny. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You have a very fascinating culture. You're, you're a very interesting man to talk to, person, uh, very knowledgeable uh, about your culture. And there's so many things that uh, we can talk about uh, just on your culture alone. Uh, and uh, maybe uh, uh, we can just touch on one more area that I wanted to. There's actually a few other areas that I wanted to uh, talk about with you, but uh, you know uh, we've got to limit our time on these podcasts. So tell me uh, one last thing. I guess this would be the uh, just this one one question about I wanted to ask you about. Uh, Chief Mountain and uh, its importance to your culture. And then I have maybe 
two more shorter questions after that. So maybe tell us a little bit about Chief Mountain, the big mountain that, that you can see that you people go to and have special ceremonies and tell us a little bit about that. Okay, uh, Chief Mountain is, um, like you mentioned, is a, is a very sacred spot. We call it in Blackfoot, Nivnastaku, Chief Mountain. Mistakiks are mountains. Mistaku is referring to one mount. Ninastaku is what we call it. It's long been a place of uh, a pilgrimage spot of, of the Blackfoot people to go up there to seek visions, dreams, energies, experience the energy, the, the spiritual energy, the supernatural. It all helps shape a person. The people who go up there and come back down, they, they all say, well, I left something up there, but I gained something up there. And I'm coming down it with a different point of view. I'm a changed person in some ways. That's the power of Chief Mountain. And in, in the Blackfoot way, there are areas that emanate energy, power spots the energy that comes out of the earth. And in these areas are kind of like a bridge, a window, a porthole, if you will, to other energies that we definitely can't, you know, experience in our everyday lives. So Chief Mountain is one of these, these uh, power spots that people go to seek spiritual guidance, spiritual visions and and also in, to gain spiritual power that's 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 the back that's what the Ninostaku gives us the gift from Ninostaku yeah that's a pretty big mountain and uh, how far up the mountain do you guys go right to the very top the trail to it is a uh, well chief mountains on the south side of the medicine line Blackfoot, I mean, in the Blackfeet, I'm Scopipigani. That's that's on their land. So it's a it's in the state of Montana, uh, right along the border, U.S. Canada border. Yeah. And to get there, there's a trail that you you gain access to it on the south side of the mountain itself. And it, I've been up there once. It's an incredible climb. You can actually experience and see the curvature of the earth from up there. How long does it take? Well, it depends on what kind of condition one is exactly. and, who you're, and who your hiking mates are. Right, yeah. It <laughs> would take me a month. <laughs> that took me about five hours. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, it's better the higher you get up, the thinner the oxygen gets. Oh, it must be fantastic. Yeah, you start getting up there and your muscles start just screaming for oxygen, hey, so you got to stop and... Yeah. Reoxygenize your blood and, uh, you know, by the time you get up there, you know, you're totally spent and any thought you had in your head when you, when you got off the vehicle, is it's long gone. Really? And, and it's, it's just your, your body and your open mind yeah. standing up there. And that's when you really feel the energy. Hey. Yeah. I yeah. saw it when I was there and I was just fascinated by it. You talked a bit about it, and other people we met while we were there too spoke about it. And the, 
and the importance of it and the sacredness of it. I just found it because it's you see it so clearly, you know, on a on a on a clear day. It's so it's such a huge mountain. It's just I was just fascinated by it. The other thing that we're kind of getting close to the end here, and I I have maybe just one more question, uh, and it's uh you know part of what we do at Legacy Hope Foundation is we're working on different projects of trying to make. Uh, I guess this world, this country, a better place to live, creating better understanding, you know, with with our cultures and uh, uh, trying to uh, create a better understanding with non-native people and other people from other parts of the world that live in Canada, so that Canada can be a better place to live. Uh, so we've been working on uh, different projects to do that. And... Uh, one of the things that's uh, that's kind of been on top of our list is uh, trying to do things that bring people together. You know, reconciliation has been the uh, the buzzword that's that's been used quite a bit. And how would like uh, if you had something to say to ca Canadians uh, in terms of reconciliation? Uh, is there something there that you know a message that you'd like to like to give? Well. Um, reconciliation between the, between the, I guess, uh, modern day Canadians and the First Nations people, natives up here. Also, I could say to me, words aren't what we should be using. And that goes from the classroom all the way up to the prime minister and all points in between. Words are like dreams. Words are like a thought. Here one moment, gone the next, soon forgot. If we want true reconciliation and we want to step off in that direction in a meaningful way, in the true way, never mind, let's put meaningful aside, the truth, because we all know the truth will set us free. <laughs> say that in jest. Yeah. I would I would say that we start take all the half of the history, Canadian history, if not all of it, and rewrite it in a true way, not the one-sided version of the British and the British stock that presently today call themselves Canadians. You know, it's not like Canadians grew out of the potato patch and we're always here. That goes for the Americans. Not like, you know, somebody planted Canadian seeds here three, four hundred years ago and boom. You know, they yeah. came here from Britain. Right. In a lot of cases, they were their rejects. Right. They sent shiploads of convicts and derelicts and undesirables to come and tame the new land. Now they got to stop putting all this Jacarche and stuff aside and say, yeah, we sent one to a million criminals over there. And yes, all their trails are, Rogers never discovered Pat, Rogers Pass. He just followed, followed the natives up there. Yeah. He followed. So, 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 you know, that's where, to me, if we really, if they're true about reconciliation, rewrite the history of this nation that we call today Canada, and let's write it with the First Nations perspective 
in there in our vast contributions and uh, that we we contributed to what we know as Canada today in terms of science, in terms of natural resources, in terms of human kindness, in terms of respect, in in terms of what a human being is supposed to be. Let's rewrite it. The day I see those steps and measures being taken, then I will say, that's the history of this country. We've contributed in many conflicts, right back to the 1700s, where we helped push the Yankee, the British Yankees back. We backed up the, the uh, British Canadians as native people, right up to the present day. Yeah. We fought in wars yeah. valiantly. And uh, so, you know, to say this and to say that and pass a little bit, of, you know, uh, one bit of legislation and apology and tear on TV and this and that. I mean, we all get emotional. We all cry. But do we really want to me? You asked me the question. That's right. Rewrite history and let's do it the truthful way. That's to me, that's reconciliation. Excellent. Very well said. And I totally agree. Harley, uh, you know, uh, part of our uh, culture, well, a good part of our culture, Aboriginal culture, has humor. And I guess, you know, it's part of our resiliency. It's kind of a built-in resiliency that we have, you know, in, in our nature. And uh, everywhere I've gone across this country, and I've met two of you, I'm sure, uh, other Aboriginal people, uh, and I've always found that there's, you know, the same commonality is that they have this humor, and uh, so part of Roots and Hoots is uh, is to put some humor in in our discussions, and uh, so uh, and that's the Hoots part, and uh, we we just finished talking about the Roots part, so. Uh, uh, so we're, we're just the last kind of thing we want to end off this podcast is uh, we ask uh, our guests if uh, if they have a joke or a, a funny story to tell. You know, it's up to you. It's optional. If you don't want, if you don't have one, that's fine too. Uh, so uh, I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that with you. And uh, when you're done, we'll just close it off. Well, uh, <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, to me, it was funny. I'll, I'll share a little experience, a little story that. Uh, and so, where I live, I I get all sorts of birds come visit my place, and that they land on my decks, and that I get birds, magpies, and owls, and falcons, and eagles, and hawks. They all just I don't know why they converge near my home. But we had a few years ago, we had a spring storm, and I got a wood heater in my basement that I. Utilize and anyway, so I come down. It's around June or something, and I could hear something in my stovepipe. So I figured it was a, uh, it was a uh, a bat. So I let go. I figured. So one morning I, I, I was kind of chilly. A couple a day or so after I heard that noise, so I went up to my wood stove and I was gonna start it up. I like the smell of that wood and not so much the 
the uh, furnace. So anyway, so I go and get all my paper ready, put it on top and kindling on top of the stove. And I open the, the, the door and something just comes flying or just shoots out of that stove. Ashes flying all over and I, 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 I topple right over backwards. And I just like that. <laughs> Stay there, shock. I see all these ashes in the air, and I was scrambling around. And I jump around, and I look around, and here's this duck. Man, yeah. duck somehow <laughs> made its way down by chimney and uh, ended up in my stove. Yeah. So when I opened my stove, it's come out of there like a bat out of hell, as they say. Knocked yeah. me flat on my back, spilled yeah. all my tea and stuff, and uh. Needless to say, the wife started hollering upstairs. She heard me and yeah. all the ruckus down here. And so she comes downstairs, and we got two little house puppies. Follow down, and you want to see uh, the uh, definition of craziness, screaming, barking, ducking. Uh, <laughs> it was just, I wish I had a camera. I would have put it on the funniest videos. Long story short, we grabbed the blanket. I bundled up the duck, cornered the guy, and took him outside and let him go and he was sure I'm sure he was just as glad to leave as I was to have him go. Oh but yeah, God. that's kind of my not so much a joke, but it it sure was funny, you know, yeah. and I I, I just it, I always remember that time. And but nowadays I go to my stove and I'm almost a little cautious when I open the door. Never know yeah. what spring yeah, out right. of there. Yeah. So I will leave you with my uh, yeah. with my duck in the stove story. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Harry, uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. I've been talking to Harley Bastian from the Picani First Nation in Alberta. And this is Gordon Spence uh, signing off. Uh, Roots and Hoots. Join us again next time. Thank you very much.